Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. You know the drill, write a review, share with a friend, help us grow. Today in the booth, we got Rania Patrice. Rania's been 20 years in the business in the Democratic Party as an operative and campaign manager, most namely for the Bernie campaign in 2016. She's also currently working on HR 40. Today we get into her personal immigration story, Bernie's 2016 campaign, and HR 40 with all of its implications. So listen up. Welcome, Rania. We have uh, Rania Patrice on the pod today. She's done a lot of different things. She's been a Democratic operative for the past 20 years. She's worked with March for Our Lives, the Sunrise Movement. She has her own firm. She worked on the Bernie campaign. But we brought her on today, and we'll talk about some of those things, uh, but we really want to talk about HR 40. And for all of you who've been listening, you know that you know, Jim, myself, and Ed were always yelling about reparations in HR 40 and some of the stuff in between that we think can be a distraction. So uh, we're excited just to talk with someone who's, you know, doing this work behind the scenes to really, I think, just dive in a bit deeper and help us understand what's actually happening. Is this the time uh, that we can finally start making some inroads? So anyway, Rania, pleasure to have you on this morning. Thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, why don't you maybe before we obviously dive like straight in the well, maybe give us just a little bit on kind of just a little overview on obviously you've done a lot of different things, but uh, maybe just a quick background and just kind of what your path has been in starting to do this work around HR 40. Yeah, so I I have been asked a lot over the years why I do what I do because it's not warm and fuzzy and it's always stressful and always traumatic in some way. And I realized just last year that I've sort of been fighting for justice and equality since I was a little kid because I'm a Palestinian. Then I was a Palestinian girl. There were very clear expectations of me that were very different from my two brothers. There were different rules. My little brother, I mean, silly little things like he had a later curfew when he was 13 years old than I did at like being in high school. So, you know, it was always just fighting to be seen and fighting to be heard and fighting to be more than just, you know, be told that my aspiration in life was to be a wife and mother period, that's it. And not that there is anything wrong with being a wife and mother. I am fully on board with anybody who wants to take that path and has taken that path. But I knew from a very young age that wasn't me. And so um, it actually, it makes sense that it's just sort of continued my entire life into my career that justice, equality, fairness are kind of at the core of everything that I do. And I have spent, like you said, it's been 20 years just really working at the intersection of politics and policy and advocacy, which have oftentimes been disjointed. But it's one of the really exciting things about HR 40 is we're seeing all of these things come together, amazing partnerships um, and allies from unexpected places. So in a time that it's a little tough to find hope. I am feeling a little hopeful. So, you know, that's good. So I, I, I saw on your, your profile and you mentioned, you know, being raised by conservative parents in, in Texas. And I think even taking a step back to, you know, your, your family Palestinian. And then usually I would say that 
folks in the progressive movement, there's usually some sort of like kinship between, you know, black issues and American Palestinians for just like the levels of oppression. Is it one of these situations where your family was more conservative when they came here, or at least your parents were almost as a way of just trying to just like assimilate in, which obviously can be somewhat of like a typical immigrant move? Kind of how did that manifest? Yeah, I definitely think that assimilation is part of it, part of even how they view themselves within the community. Because I grew up in West Texas, they're still there. They think it's the greatest place on earth. I love my family dearly, deeply. I mean, very, very much, but we don't agree on pretty much anything. But so, that, you know, there is this, the assimilation factor, but they legitimately are conservative. I mean, they're socially conservative. And now they've come a long way over the years as, many have, and that's what we want, right? We want people to evolve and adjust and understand why it's important for people to be treated equally. Uh, so they, they've, they've come a long way, but they still, you know, hold these sort of conservative values. And, uh, and part of it too is my family is Catholic. And so their Catholicism plays into it as well. And, and it comes out in really interesting ways. So I, I definitely think it's a combination of things the really interesting thing, though, is when you, and I know that we're not going to jump into this now, but when you think about foreign policy and conservative viewpoints versus more progressive viewpoints, that is sort of where there's a lot of departure for my family. So, you know, it, it, like I said, it's a combination of things. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And I feel like we've all spoken about this because I think we, we all have different grandparents who you kind of fall more in the conservative lines. And there's usually some sort of like religious bent. There's also just, um, you know, I think a, a certain way of just having grown up that just there are certain ways that, you know, people were taught that just leans a little bit more conservative than just general values. And that is, that's a broad spectrum. And I think people even saw that in the way that I think, you know, Ed was talking about his grandmother. Ed, your grandmother's in Mississippi or was from Mississippi, right? You said it's like very conservative. Yeah, but it this is good. I think the the word conservative is is just so many different things to so many people. Yeah, she's from Mississippi. She's, you know, the black side. She's um, her grandparents were enslaved. So from Mississippi, a Republican, like a Lincoln Republican from back in the day before the party realignment. So not conservative in the ways that we think about it in contemporary times. But, you know, there, there's there's obviously a lot there. And Rania, were your parents, were they involved in politics in Palestine before coming over? Or like, what, what did what did it look like over there versus how did it translate into, you know, our, I think, very different conservatism. That is such an interesting thing to dive into because they weren't involved in politics in the way that we might think about it. It was more like a fight for self-determination because they were being oppressed, you know? I mean, that, and that was a reality that they had to, it's why they left it's why they came to the United States, which is always something I, I struggle, I grapple with all the time is, you know, they left stolen land and came to stolen land. And while I am eternally grateful that we are here, because I oftentimes think about, I mean, I would probably be in prison or dead because y'all may have picked up. I'm a little bit opinionated. I have very strong thoughts about things. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I am grateful to be here and to have the opportunity to have conversations like we're having right now and to have all of the opinions that I have and to share them loudly and publicly. So th they weren't 
involved sort of like on the electoral side, like you, you know, sort of the things that I do that I, I work in politics, it's not what they were doing, but they were really just sort of fighting to live, which feels like a political act these days, but really it's just survival. Right. Did they, did they consider immigrating to anywhere else besides America? Do you, do you know? Well, it's a, it's a funny story. Actually, my, my, uh, my dad came over first and I have a lot of, I have, I always joke that my family's like a small army. It's huge. I still have tons of family back home and in, in Germany and Austria and France. And then I have a ton of family that's in the U S now. So my dad and, and his older brother came first and they met a missionary in Nazareth who helped them get student visas is basically how, and, and he was from Lubbock, Texas. So that is how that all happened. It's such a, it's a random thing. Somebody from Lubbock, which, you know, it's grown a bit now, but it's a small town was there, was back home and met my dad and liked him and wanted to help bring him over. And so that's, that's kind of how that happened. And he graduated, my dad ended up graduating from Texas Tech University and married my mom, brought her over and never there, they never want to leave. So, so I, I think the answer is they never considered anywhere else because even now I've lived all over the country. I lived, I've lived all over the world and anytime they would come visit, they'd just be like, it's not like Lubbock. I'm like, you're right. It's not flat. <laughs> Can't see the curve of the earth. <laughs> I mean, are they the Red Raiders football fans? Did they dive all the way in with it? Or? Oh, yeah. It's hilarious because my, my older brother and I were athletes our entire lives. I played basketball through college and ran track hey, and all, all the things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah. And my dad, of course, did not approve of his daughter being an athlete, but we, my brother and I were always athletes. So they sort of begrudgingly would watch, but now are these like sort of diehard Raider fans. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Whatever works. I love it. Oh my God. It, it, it's so fascinating how these things work. I was, I was actually just watching like Padma Lakshmi's uh, show. I don't know if you've mm. seen it. It's actually not yet. Good. It's on my list. <laughs> yeah. And she was doing an episode on in El Paso. Um, and she, I remember she went to this one, like, it looks like a gas station, but it's like, I guess some of the best just kind of like Mexican food. And a lot of the women who work there cross the border every day. And the guy who then like runs, who's run it for like 40, 50 years is like, diehard conservative, but I believe his parents or grandparents were also from Mexico as well. Although he's like kind of Joe American at this point. And it's just like this such funny, just, you know, it's like, that's, I guess, like how our melting pot, like none of it kind of like you look at it and you're like, wait, what's happening here? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just like this jigsaw, but these are these stories. Uh, and especially I'm sure you see them a lot in Texas, right? Especially as Texas is becoming, I think growing up, I thought of Texas just as like a bunch of just like white cowboy guys. But then I started going to Houston and some of these other places and I was like, oh, wow, you have such a composite of people here. But these people who are bringing their cultures and their lifestyle are also kind of adapting to like being a Texan. So, Which is like its own country, honestly. And right. I, it's funny that you said that because I'm wearing my Beto shirt today just by total random happenings <laughs> a friend and old client and stuff. Uh, but I've spent tons of time in El Paso. Best Mexican food in the state is in El Paso. I'm going to get in trouble for that but it is amazing <laughs> that 
I bet, I bet, I bet. Yeah, cool. but it, it's true. It is. I mean, Texas has its own sort of ecosystem of, of things. And so when you talk about immigration and assimilation, it's even more intense, I feel like, than maybe other parts of the country. Yeah. I mean, Houston, first time I ever knew about Viet Cajun was Houston. I was like, this is a thing. This is amazing. I can't believe <laughs> this is like possible. Um, but I just, all, all these different ways it's coming together. I don't know. It's very, very cool. I've actually, I would definitely say probably growing up, I had just one of these like East Coast knee-jerk reactions to Texas. And then uh, now I see it in a very, very different way. But um, but yeah, so I, I mean, I guess like moving on, um, you know, I, I think we should actually just touch upon a little bit about just some of the campaign work and then we can kind of move forward. And I guess the reason I do, I do want to touch upon that is obviously probably for a lot of listeners, I would say wherever they were, in the way they were viewing politics or the progressivism, it would be hard to not say that Bernie did not shift the narrative in a way that no other politician has in recent memory. And so kind of just even curious as to how you got to know him, how you got to know the campaign and how that came about. Yeah, so the political world on the electoral side is actually, it's just a very small world. And after so many years doing this work, you know, I, I will work with somebody in a cycle that I haven't worked with in 10 or 15 years and, and I'll, they just pop back up. So it's just, a, it's a very interesting kind of industry, we'll call it. And, but the progressive world is a sort of its own entity as well. And, and I have worked in progressive politics and advocacy for a really long time. I actually had started on a different campaign, we'll say that, in 2015 and I left and really wasn't sure what I was going to do. And, and it is such a small world. And so you get calls from the different campaigns and it just, it's just how it happens. I'm not special. It wasn't, it's just, it's just how it works. And a friend of mine was working for Bernie in Iowa and said, you know, I really think you should check him out. And I, I, I of course I knew who he was. I respected his politics. We were very aligned from a policy perspective but I was like, mm, like it was very early in 2015. I was like, I don't know about this. I did get to have a conversation with him about Israel-Palestine. And that was sort of my deciding factor because it, it's, it's obviously, it's personal to me. Um, my family's still there. The atrocities that are still being carried out there are very real. And so that was kind of a, it, it's a big question that not very many people have answers to and or will not answer honestly. And so we had a really great conversation. It was a, a funny situation as sometimes has gone in my life where Bernie was originally a client of mine. I was there to help with uh, big events and things like debates and stuff like that. It was just, you know, his client. And that lasted about maybe like three weeks. And then I became uh, the Iowa communications director. And then I moved out to Vermont and led the surrogate department. And then I became the deputy campaign manager. And so I kind of have to laugh sometimes when I think about it because he was just supposed to be a client. That was it. And then, you know, I'm one of those people, oftentimes you can tug at my heartstrings and convince me <laughs> to, <laughs> to drop everything and jump in. And, and honestly, you know, every, every campaign has its frustrations and stresses and all the things. But I am really glad I was part of it. It was... It was historic. And it just like you said, I mean, it shifted things in a way that I don't think anybody ever thought was possible. 
you said the National Surrogates Director. It sounds familiar, but I, 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 you know, I'm not sure exactly what that role is. Sure. Yeah. So on, especially on presidential campaigns, sometimes on other campaigns as well, the surrogate department or program surrogates are just like the celebrities, the influencers, the other politicians that endorse a campaign. And there's a whole strategy, of course, that goes around engaging uh, those folks and and how, how, where do they go and how? And, and for me, I, I still do a lot of work with these folks. And I think I am very fortunate that I get to work with celebrities and influencers who are honest to God activists and care a great deal. But part of, I feel like the relationship that I've been able to build with them is because I really, really care to learn what they care about instead of just saying, okay, you're, you know, you're famous person X, I'm going to shove you into this spot because you're famous and you know, they're human too. And so like, they really have like passions and concerns and, and things that make them tick. And so I, I think um, I've, like I said, I've been fortunate to get to do some of that work too. How do you qualify surrogates, you know, authenticity and being genuine and, you know, wanting Bernie to do well is, is obviously one, but like, is it, is it any deeper than that? Oh, yeah. Well, it's different person to person, right? right? And campaign to campaign, quite frankly. And I often say, I'm going to get in so much trouble, but whatever. That's what we're here for, right? Good, good trouble. Um, There are good trouble folks who good trouble. There are people, and we see this not just with celebrities, but across the board who see a trend and want to jump on board. You know, it's the cool thing to do. And then there are people who have spent their lives fighting these fights. I mean, truly, truly. This, they didn't wake up yesterday and go, I think I care about the environment today. You know, it, didn't, it doesn't work out. It's not, that's not who they are authentically, genuinely, deep down to their core. But then there's another group of people that I, I equally love and, and do work with. There are people who are just waking up to what is really going on and they don't know how to engage. And I will have a hundred conversations a hundred times out of a hundred with those people because I think part of it, there is sort of this mentality of you weren't with us, you weren't here before, you didn't you know, show up to it, so you can't play in our sandbox. And I'm like, wait. Like if we're building a movement, let's build a movement. And that has to include space for people who are just starting to learn the truth. And so while I, I'm not interested in the like fad sort of activists, I am absolutely interested in people who are waking up to what's real and what's been real for, for so many years, generations. I was just going to shout out, Ber- Bernie did my favorite commercial of 2016. He, he, I'm always curious of like how like music license, I mean, I know how music licensing works, but how expensive it is for campaigns, but they use the Simon and Garfunkel America track. And it was right around when he started, he was just like starting to pop on like every speech he was doing was like 10, 20, 30,000 people. And they used it to show all the different stuff. And, you know, I've been kind of very politically engaged my whole life. I've followed every election very, you know, with a lot of scrutiny. And, you know, I look back at like all the people I was like voting for, you know, whether it was Al Gore or John Kerry or just all these people who I was like fine with, but I never like felt like an actual like excitement about. 
And then suddenly we got, you know, Bernie, who I'd seen on TV for years, who I always kind of agreed with, but always just looked kind of crazy to me. And, like, you know, totally fair, totally. Fair. Uh, <laughs> and, and then suddenly I was like, wow, this guy's actually somehow channeling like the real deal. I, I do know something that I just wanted to bring up, which I think will kind of lead us into this HR 40 conversation. But, you know, one, he clearly pushed the wind over to window like way further than anyone else ever has. I feel like I still felt at times where it was the language at that point in 2016 was still very much more a bit in class than race. And I you know, look, I, I in my mind, I took a step back and I was like, this prize the right move politically because I don't know if like we're totally here, but I felt like whenever reparations or other things at the time were brought up, Bernie did kind of like push it off. Do you think at, at that point we just, it was like, we're pushing so many things right now. It was almost like, we just can't push one more thing or it was really more of a strategy. This is actually talking the way we're talking gets us actually in a much further place that will still loop around to all the other things. I think, and he did a little bit of a better job of it in 2020, but in 2016, he really, it was a point of contention as you might imagine, because we yeah. were having these conversations all the time, but he really felt as though it was offensive to to specify that the economic inequality he was talking about was, of course, for Black and Brown and Indigenous people. And just completely was, it was a little bit lost on him that these communities want to hear it. They want to hear the specificity and want to know that you're not just talking past, you're seeing, you're diving deep. And so it really, it was less about that it was a political maneuver and more about sort of his heart and what was in his mind and what he thought, you know, he didn't want to ever appear as though he was talking down. And in his mind, he had convinced himself that that was somehow talking down because of course, of course, that's who, what I'm talking about. Of course, that's who I'm talking to. But, you know, again, it, it was a miss. It was a big miss. And I will say, I think in general, the conversation around reparations was very like, yeah, yeah, you know, sort of a little hand wave off, not taken very seriously. People were afraid of the conversation for some reason across the board. I don't, you know, it obviously wasn't just Bernie. I think it was just a tough conversation. And rather than having the tough conversation, and it's not tough is not the right word. It was a nuanced conversation and there's history involved. And like, we, you know what I mean? So tough is the wrong word. Nuanced is the right one. And rather than say, okay, we are going to have this conversation. It was sort of like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we'll, we'll talk about that later. You know, as a kid's kick the can down the road a little bit. So that's a really interesting contention that you said existed in 2016, you know, during his early run. Do you think that it was partially also strategic in that to galvanize as many white people as you can, you kind of have to not make them feel bad and and talk about I think the reparations and the indictment of how truly um, massive a force of racism is probably splinters a larger white coalition strategically. And I think that there are a lot of historical precedents for that, that, you know, that is, in fact, in order to 
progress and mobilize large amounts of white people, you kind of have to subordinate those kinds of concerns and almost repress them. And it works. It's worked in the past. It's worked, you know, over centuries in this country. Do you think maybe it was a bit of that in in the strategic sense, you know, and I and I love Bernie. I mean, I understand the practicality of it, like the history of African-Americans and people of color in this country is very inconvenient. And it does. It is a huge wedge issue, you know, but do you think it, there was a strategic piece of it as well? I don't. I understand what you're saying. And I don't disagree, but not for Bernie. And it's and listen, it's like. I'm not a Kool-Aid drinker. Like I have all kinds of feelings. I'm not somebody who's like, oh, he can do no wrong. He can. But on this issue in particular, in really a lot of issues, Bernie doesn't care about traditional political strategy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then that is sort of the, again, sometimes the point of contention for people who just want to win because there are things that he could do strategically that he felt like, you know, would have, and I'm not talking about reparations, I'm just talking about in general here, that he felt like would have been pandering or disingenuous or, you know, and he just, he had no time for that. And so I get what you're saying. And again, I don't disagree. I think in general, that that is a calculation that happens across any number of issues in politics. I often say, you know, legislation in this country is a PR strategy and, and it's, that's part of it. And it's really infuriating because like we need to be helping people and saving lives. And instead we're talking about like, and listen, PR is important. That's part of what I do, but that does not actually fix things. So yeah, I mean, like I, I agree in general, but I think for Bernie, it, it just, he's just not here for it again, for better or for worse on the, on the operative side, it was always kind of like there were lots of arguments and things, but yeah, he's, he is going to do what he is going to do. It feels that way. Well, you know, I guess, you know, obviously the past few years since that election, we've obviously seen, you know, this blue wave and you know, we were talking about Cory Bush and, you know, all the different candidates that are coming in and, you know, where we are on positions and it's, been definitely a welcome breath of fresh air just to see what is happening with all this. But, you know, in light of the Black Lives Matter movement and all the different things, it's like everyone's like all over the place a little bit, which of course is is rational within just like almost like this like upheaval of of conscious. Uh, And so, you know, people are starting like white people book clubs and, you know, the NBA is putting Black Lives Matter everywhere. And, you know, we're renaming streets and we're doing like all of these like little things. And it's at times it just feels like we're putting so much energy into these like minuscule like signals instead of actually talking about restorative justice, right? Instead of talking about like education justice, some of these bigger things. And HR 40, we, we geek out on it. And for those who are listening, you've probably heard us, but, you know, Representative John Conyers started introducing the bill back in 87. And it's supposed to be an examination of the pillaging of Black people since our beginning and really trying to have a you know, real understanding and examination of the real amount of damage and whatever that is. And so people, you know, I think people immediately like, well, we just can't write a check. And I was like, well, this is the whole point. <laughs> it, it's a it's a real examination to get there. And what's interesting is, you know, I've been getting in these back and forths with some people, friends on the right, or even moderates who like, we're like, we're for Black Lives Matter, but the looting, and we've chatted about the whole looting kerfuffle and other episodes on this uh, and that misnomer. But what I find is, you know, 
a lot of times they're like, well, you're just saying you want to do this or that, but what's the end goal? So that's like the thing on the right. They're always like, what's the end goal? Yeah. The end goal is reparations. Well, and, and like, even beyond like full, that, full like stop. the end goal is justice. Right, right, I right. Talk, I'm so sorry. I'm jumping in here, but it's something that like grates on my every last nerve and makes me want to just throw shit. It is this idea that our system is broken is such a, it's such an idea of privilege. It's not broken. It was created to function exactly how it's functioning. Mm -hmm. So it's not broken. It's perfect. It is perfect for a certain class of people. And so the idea that, you know, that, that it's, it's just reparations is actually not true. Like we created the system to oppress an entire group of people. And that is what this country was founded on and has continued. It's never stopped. We call it gentrification today. You know, we call it any number of things today, but it's just like we created this system and then we point, and I've had this conversation with members of my family, not my parents, I will say, but literally members of my family who were like, they just need to work harder and they need to, and I'm like, Oh my God, how are we related? <laughs> like the, and, and it's especially offensive because, you know, it, there, is a, there is a direct correlation between the black community and the Palestinian community, community and indigenous communities and all these marginalized communities. And, and it just like, it makes my head hurt and it makes me want to puke just to just the, the lack of appreciation for what this system that was intentionally set up to oppress has caused. You know, we look around and we can point to all kinds of things, whether we're talking about the justice system, which is, I mean, who is it just for? We know whether we're talking, you know, about the, the war on drugs, we're talking about private prisons, we're talking about uh, communities and food deserts and like all these different things that it's so intentional and reparations is one part of atoning, but not just atoning, making it better. We have to, right? Right. We're, we're just trying to get back to this point and then we have to move on from there. Yeah. When did, when did you first come um, start working in and around HR 40 work? Around, well, I've, I've been around it since, uh, since Conyers, it was still Conyers' bill. And that is another thing too. The bill has actually adjusted since Sheila Jackson Lee took it over after John Conyers retired. So where it was a study on reparations and and if reparations should be paid it is now a study on how so it is a, it's a it's again a nuanced distinction but it is important because we're no longer saying should this happen we are saying it should happen and what does that look like um and so i met Dr. Ron Daniels, who founded the National African American Reparations Commission just earlier this year. And I met him through a dear friend of mine, Jackie Patterson at the NAACP. It's a, it's a really funny story. Long story short, I was afraid he was going to lecture me on our first call, but he was actually telling me that I was his sister because he has been fighting for Palestinian self-determination as long as he's been fighting for black self-determination. And I just was like, oh, I felt all the feels. And I was like, okay, we, 
we're gonna we're gonna do great things together. But um, it was really just earlier this year that I jumped in with the coalition, which it's an amazing coalition. Again, the NAARC, the NAACP, ACLU, Black Lives Matter, Movement for Black Lives, Color of Change, CAP, like all kinds of and Cobra, lots of really amazing organizations have come together to push to really, really push. And we have, there's a historic number of co, uh, co-signer, co, co-sponsors, I can't talk now, on the bill on HR 40, and which is necessary, obviously. It has to go through the whole process, go through markup, come to the floor for a vote. But the other thing that's really exciting too is the number of allies that have come out loudly and strongly from the uh, philanthropic communities, from corporate America, individuals who have signed on to a letter that we, the coalition sent to Congress. And, you know, putting your name on a letter might seem like such a small thing, but it's actually a really big deal when you consider how, to your point, how much, not even pushback, but just dismissal of the conversation around reparations has happened over the years. So it's, it, it's very, don't get me wrong, we have a ton of work to do, but it's very exciting to see the conversation happening across so many different spaces in very, very real ways. That's interesting, the, the distinction between Conyers' um, old version and Congresswoman Sheila, Sheila Lee's new version, you know, if reparations rather than how exactly. So why did that shift happen? And then also, um, don't we already, you know, why do we need a study? Don't we already know like what should be paid? Don't we, shouldn't we just like extrapolate hourly wages and just for inflation and then it's just a big back payment kind of thing? Or, you know, why do we need a study exactly? I think that there's a number of different things at play here. One it is really the how, because it's not just about a single payment, right? And that is something I really love about the NAARC. They have a 10-point plan that talks about community investment too, and higher education and all of these different things. So it's not as simple as like, oh, we're just going to write one check. And so I think that is where the study is actually important. Now, the trick is the study is not enough right? That is like the, the big point. And no one that's working on this thinks, okay, we're going to get this passed and then the work is done. No. And we're seeing really amazing things happening on the state level. I'm sure y'all have seen in North Carolina and Illinois, like there's some really great stuff happening. But to have this pass on the federal level allows for sort of the next steps and for it to be done thoughtfully and correctly versus, I mean, we all know the gamesmanship that happens, unfortunately, in Washington, D.C. And so I do think uh, I'm a very impatient person, so I just want everything to happen like yesterday. But I do understand the importance of making sure it's done correctly, because the last thing we want to happen is for then people to point and say, oh, we already you know, we already did this, we're, we're, our work here is done, which happens. We've all seen that happen before. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, the way that people talk about reparations and, oh, we already know, like, we really don't know to the extent and how many dimensions reparations could be attributed to. I think one of the biggest, and I, you know, I'd love you to get your thoughts on this. One of the biggest factions within the Black community when understanding reparations is, American descendants of slavery versus black immigrants and, you know, who qualifies, how exactly, 
you know, why do people qualify? And I think the one of the things that the talk about reparations recently has expanded into, oh, this isn't just about slavery. I mean, the system that uh, was needed to organize slavery persist uh, after slavery was abolished um, in terms of political, social, and, and sort of civic um, system, which created more injuries afterwards, but expanding it beyond just well, you know, I, my family didn't own any slaves and, you know, we just got here, we got here, my family immigrated here after slavery, so why should we pay all of those things? Really gets to the point of, well, this is bigger than just the institution of, of slavery. Have you seen the scope get larger around that and having a more nuanced and contemporary conversation? You know, when we talk about, you know, ta Coach writes, writes about housing, you know, you know, where have you seen that conversation go? I really would encourage folks to check out, the website is ibw21.org and the National African American Reparations Commission 10 point plan is on there because it touches exactly on what you're saying. And I mean, we can we, we can talk about modern day too. And I, I'm sure y'all are familiar with the, things like the Tim Cole Act that pays reparations to wrongfully imprisoned people who are predominantly black men. You know, it, there's, the, uh, I used to be the executive director of the Innocence Project of Texas, and so I can go off on a whole tangent on that and how messed up all of that is. But, but that, you know, it wasn't just the system of slavery, to your point. Of course, that was a huge, huge part of it, but it's so much more than that. And it has continued, what I was talking about, like these systems that have been put in place, it continues today. And so access to higher education, access to even things like healthy food, you know, when we're talking about the ability to live a, a, a life, you know, your life in, in healthy ways, when you're surrounded by fast food versus fresh produce or the affordability of it or, or, or like there's all these different things. I mean, there are so many underlying health conditions. We're seeing it with, it's being exacerbated by COVID. There's a huge spotlight on it. Is this new? No, but it is part of the systemic racism and inequality that's been put in place. And it has ex extended from slavery to today. So to your point, I think that there is a lot of conversation happening and has been happening. They're not even new conversations. They're just now coming into the light a bit more around what does it look like to really support communities, whether it is education, whether it is, you know, busting down this horrendous injustice system, whether it is tearing back the, all of the damage done by the war on drugs and all of these different things. There's so much to unpack here and it is more than around slavery. That's a huge part of it, of course, but that's, that's one piece of the entire puzzle. Far one, one last Sorry, for one, one last thing. I just you you made me think about the way you were you were framing. You made me think about um, just this quick Supreme Court case in in 1968, Jones v. Mayer, um, where this this black man and, and his wife were trying to either either rent or purchase real estate in in St. Louis County, Missouri, and uh, he was denied. And you know we all know why. And but the court case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they won. They said that it is a violation of the 13th Amendment that was used to abolish slavery and that denying somebody or discriminating against them in terms of real estate is tied to that because it is a badge and incident of slavery. This is real estate in 1968, you know, not slavery in 1860. But it's still happening now. Right, yeah. But it, housing discrimination happens right now today. Right, yeah, exactly. You know, 
exactly. what I mean? That's what's so like, we can't pretend like we've caught, co- I mean, listen, we have come a long way in some ways, but we can't pretend like we are not in this place where we, again, I, I sound like a broken record, but where we're upholding these systemic issues, they exist today. Housing discrimination happens today. Right. Don't take our word for it, listeners. The Supreme Court said it. Yeah. They said it in 1968. It is a badge and incident of slavery. Today's discrimination, it's connected. Therefore, you know, H.R. 40 is relevant, you know. Sorry, I just wanted to throw yeah. that. Go ahead, Farb. No, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I was going to say is, you know, you look at like criminal justice reform and we had the First Step Act and hopefully we can do better than Van Jones and Jared Kushner's sneaky deals on the side. But um, there was still uh, the reason we even got whether you totally thought that was a wash or not. There was some movement, at least because there are some Republicans and conservatives who are starting to take that issue seriously. When it comes to H.R. 40, are there any factions on the right that are actually starting to listen on this? Because at the end of the day, we still have to pass this. Uh, It can't just be just whatever the progressives want. So, you know, what's that roadmap look like? And are there any uh, listeners right now? Yeah, I mean, the conversations are happening. That is obviously an uphill battle. But what I will say is those voices in Congress are not necessarily representative of what's actually happening in their districts or in their states. And I think that's a really important point, which is why we all have to vote, you know, because like we elect these people, they work for us, but they're not representing us. And if they're not representing us, they have to go. And the thing I always say, and I, I work in partisan politics, so I know this sounds weird coming from me, but the, the fact of the matter is, this is not a partisan issue. This is an issue of humanity. And it's an issue of acknowledging our history and the truth of that history that has, again, continued to today. And so we, I think across a number of issues, the labels are not helpful because at the end of the day, they are issues of humanity. And if we can have that conversation, which we are, you know, that conversation gets us way further than drawing a line and saying this is progressive and this is conservative and this is you know x y or z insert label here like do you give a shit about people great let's start there look our local representatives want to keep their jobs and it's up to us to make the noise you know someone sent us a little video the other day and it was like joe biden going off on apartheid in the 80s i mean like the video you would have thought he was like this radical progressive like lion but potentially at the time that whether he believed it or not, that was what was being pushed by his people. And, you know, we, we can get all angry about it, but we have to get out there and vote. And we, we're making a lot of noise with the presidential as we should. Uh, but to your point, th- this is why Cory Bush, uh, you know, and, and some of these other representatives are so important because we are we're starting to set the table of bringing these conversations more and more into the mainstream. And the more we hear, you know, whether it's Corey or AOC or Ayana or uh, Rashida or go down the line, just laying out the facts <laughs> in a very clear, substantive way, uh, the more they're continuously making the case to the American people as to why this isn't some far-fetched radical dream, but this is actually what we all need for the better America. Uh, and it's really going to come down to that, right? I even see it like, you know, I read something this morning where it was like political fact or one poli- of these like, fact checkers was saying, you know, Biden 
will be for you know changing around the police, but he will not defund the police. Yeah, he's probably not going to be. But you know who can keep defunding the police? Local city governments, local state ordinances. You know we've seen this over and over again. The federal level, yeah, as much as we would like it to move faster, sometimes sometimes stuff has to move at the local level. And if we can't get them to do it, they at least will listen. I mean. Look at like Obama's like the way he was talking in 2008 around like gay marriage and some stuff. He could, he wouldn't he could not come out to say he was for it, even though he probably was for it. We we needed these state and local wins to happen first. So you know we we just have to remember that. I will just say too, and obviously I I just plugged voting, and I think it's very important, but it's also equally important to remember voting is like step one. We vote and then we organize. Um, because we've seen, we've seen what I, I often joke, it's not a funny joke, but rarely does a politician wake up and say they're going to do the right thing. They get pushed to do the right thing by us. And so that's where organizing comes into place. And that's where we get to recruit candidates that look like us and look like the rest of the country. So it is representative. And yes, to your point, local government is hugely important. It is where gerrymandering happens. It is where voter suppression happens. It is where education funding happens. It is where police funding happens. And so, yeah, it, and I think we have sort of historically really paid such so much attention to, to federal races, which I, I understand it is important. But yes, local government is where so much happens. And even on reparations, we're seeing local governments taking this up and making actual progress. So oh, let's do it. I'm feeling all fired up now. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and shout out uh, Greg Robinson, who's running for Tulsa mayor. We had uh, another Tulsa on to talk about him. But Greg was an activist speaking, you know, and the, the current mayor is like a purple mayor. And he's actually been, you know, starting to talk about, you know, reparations within the race massacre in Tulsa. But then, you know, he welcomed Trump and he did all sorts of things. And, you know, Terrence Crusher, who was killed by the police, he kind of you know, instead of saying it was a police brutality, you know, just said that Terrence was on drugs. And so, you know, Greg is, is a young activist and has stepped up and whether he wins or not, he's making a lot of noise in Tulsa. And this is, you know, these are the things that we need to keep seeing happen, you know, people speaking up. Uh, so, yeah. And we're, and we are seeing, it is very exciting. Again, it's on the federal level, but Jamal Bowman, Mondaire Jones. I mean, like we are seeing is Corey, of course, Corey Bush, like we're seeing amazing shifts happening and it's not by accident. Those things don't happen by accident. We make those things happen. So yeah, vote and organize. Perfect. And Ronnie, can you say that website one more time with the 10 point plan? Oh yes. It's IBW21.org. The number 21. IBW21.org. Love it. Well, we, we, we're keeping you timely. We know you have a hard stop, but uh, Ronnie Patrice, we really appreciate having you on this morning with us. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks so much. Peace.